and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia and this is my co-host Morgan. Hello. This week we're going to talk about American Gods, the TV show based on Neil Gaiman's extremely popular fantasy novel. It's adapted by Brian Fuller of Hannibal and Pushing Daisies fame and Michael Green, who has a very illustrious career of writing films, but you've probably not heard of him. Um, He co-wrote Logan and uh, Alien Covenant. He also wrote a TV show that I really love called Kings, which I would highly recommend if you like American Gods because it's kind of got like a lot of religious themes. Also, it stars Sebastian Stan, if that's what you're into. Uh, <laughs> he cries a lot. So American Gods is the story of a young man who just got out of jail. He thinks that his life is going to be back on track, but then his wife dies. So it's like classic, oh no, the protagonist's wife is dead motivation, which we have seen in so many things before. In the book, this part is not especially... Uh, illustrious but um they've they've changed that for the show and it's much better which we will discuss later but um the basic concept is a modern kind of mythological religious fantasy where each immigrant population as they come to the u.s bring their own belief systems and gods with them and as people kind of join the melting pot and move on to other religions um their old gods kind of wither and die from lack of attention And the main character that Shadow kind of hooks up with is Odin, named Mr. Wednesday, who's played by Ian McShane. Absolutely fantastic performance from him. Um, And he kind of takes Shadow on a road trip as his bodyguard across America to recruit various old gods from old religions into a war against these new entities who've become kind of the religion of American culture. So the new gods that we've seen at this point in the show are um, media who's kind of the god of pop culture, who's played by Gillian Anderson, and the technical boy, who's like the god of technology, and is this kind of douchey teenage boy who loves to vape and clearly spends a lot of time on the internet. Yeah, I think that's basically the concept. It's like a road trip story. It's very unstructured, like the book. The book is kind of more like a string of short stories along a road trip than being like a structured novel. Um, And that's kind of the way the TV show is. And they're spending like a lot of time on individual storylines instead of the main arc, because really it's kind of no one's really going to be that invested in the idea of this holy war concept. Um, so I think they made the wise choice of being like, let's just do some cool short films. But I've I've been recapping this at the Daily Dots. I've been analysing it in painstaking detail. Morgan just marathoned the first four episodes this weekend. So that is all we'll have spoilers for, just the first four. Um, and I think she basically hated it. So this is going to be an interesting episode. <laughs> yes, I could not stand this show. It was a struggle to get through these episodes so don't ever say I didn't do anything for you um I read this book in 2009 I think so I definitely remember reading it and I remember the opinions I have about it and I remember certain specific details but a lot of it I don't remember at all especially because it's such a long book so things that have been changed for the tv show I'm not necessarily going to be able to have picked up on. I mean, there were certain things that I definitely thought I have no memory of that at all. Um, But most of what I remember from the novel was just not finding the central idea that compelling. So in a way, I just don't think I'm the audience for this. And I also remember thinking that the prose was bad, which is not germane to this adaptation. (laughs) This was the first long novel that Neil Gaiman wrote by himself. So he wrote Good Omens with Terry Pratchett. It was published in 1990 and then obviously was doing Sandman and then wrote Neverwhere somewhere around then, which was, you know, originally television and then also a novel. But this was his first really big book. 
And I think he has even said that he didn't really know how to write a novel and that this was his him teaching himself. I love some of his other fiction a lot. I love The Ocean at the End of the Lane, some of his short stuff. I really don't like this book. I don't think it's very well written. I know that some people really love it. My best friend in college, it was her favorite novel, which is why I wound up reading it. So I went into the show feeling quite skeptical, which is maybe not fair. Even watching the first episode, I was kind of thinking I should have a more open mind to this. And I was kind of I mean, I think also already like, knew I as, wasn't going to like it. As I was watching it like myself a few weeks ago, I think I'd emailed you a few times being like, episodes one's really a sexist. So it's like I wasn't really <laughs> priming you for full enthusiasm, even though I do like yeah. this show a great deal more than you do. <laughs> yeah. But I think that based on my memory of the novel, my imperfect memory of the novel, they seem to have weirdly adopted some of its problems in a strange way. One of them being that I find the style of this very alienating. Like, I just visually find it unpleasant to look at. Which, like, weirdly mimics the fact that I found the prose bad to read, even though those two things don't actually have anything to do with each other. But the experience of watching reminded me of the experience of reading it in that I just didn't find it pleasurable at all. We can talk about this. I know that you didn't agree with this assessment, but I've talked to some people who did and some people who didn't, so it seems to be a bit divisive. I just found the aesthetics tacky. Like, it somehow simultaneously looks really expensive and really cheap. Like, the CGI is visibly CGI, but in a way that I didn't really understand why they were going for that. Like, it seems to be on purpose, but I don't get the point. I, it just... I don't understand what they were trying to do. It's very visually composed and there's a lot going on, which can be fine. But I didn't sense that there was a lot of, I mean, clearly there was a lot of thought that went into it, but I didn't sense that there was necessarily a big idea. And I think that part of it is that Brian Fuller's whole aesthetic is not necessarily for me. I liked Hannibal Fine. Like, I enjoyed watching it, and the aesthetic there is is very coherent to the show, but isn't necessarily just what I like to look at, but it matched the show, so that was fine. And in this, I think, A, it looks a lot worse, but B, I don't know what it's doing. So I was kind of just like, why am I watching? Like, what is this? What's going on? I don't. What? <laughs> so, I mean, I You, of course, wasn't... love Hannibal. Um, so when I initially watched this the cgi was actually unfinished so i don't have like a complete idea of what some of the cgi looks like um, most mm -hmm. of it was finished but in the kind of the review copies they occasionally had up on the screen like oh we've not finished cgiing the spider or whatever but like my impression from the parts that were finished is that it's basically they are not even attempting to make it look realistic because it's meant to be this sort of heightened fairy tale reality which is fine but um in terms of the overall visual style it's very very reminiscent of hannibal which isn't necessarily a strength. Like, obviously I am like the world's hugest Hannibal fan. I love that show. I have like maybe like 1% of that show I could criticize and the rest I'm like, this is everything I love. And I love the kind of opulent style. And for this show, Brian Fuller brought in like a lot of his artistic collaborators. Um, the composer who did the score is the same guy who did Hannibal, who's done, he's done like a very diverse range of musical genres for this one. The director, David Slade, directed the first three episodes of American Gods. He also worked on Hannibal a lot. And he likes to do a lot of kind of 
very flashy techniques. There, you know, there's this scene in one of the episodes where they kind of swoop into a lock while it's being unlocked. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of things where you have like one actor who's like propped up in a bed vertically on the wall and they like pan around like in Sherlock, that sort of thing. But in Hannibal, I feel like that's part of the kind of, it's, it's much more coherent to the concept of the show. You know, it, it needs to be like really hallucinatory and intense. And like, you know, the aesthetics are very much part of like Hannibal's own ethos as a character. So like every part of that works really, really well. And in American Gods, I kind of felt like it was very much like style over substance. Like it was, it was beautiful to look at in a lot of ways. They're having a lot of fun with the techniques they're using, but it doesn't, really have any kind of like emotional impact which is kind of my main criticism of the show as a whole which is that I basically don't care about any of the characters at all um, and I don't really care about the story emotionally even though I find it really interesting to analyze and I do I do basically like watching it but I've only reread about half the book because it's like only the first half's really relevant to the show but um it was really interesting to kind of look at that now compared to when I read it as a teenager you know I was like a goth teen I loved Neil Gaiman I still find a lot of his work really enjoyable um and I, I kind of made me realize that I'm very much more a Sandman person and I also think Sandman's much better as a piece of long-form storytelling because it does have like an epic kind of mythological arc whereas this kind of doesn't really like it kind of does but not really and like rereading the book I had the same feeling which is that the whole appeal of it is that it's so cool you know and it's a certain kind of cool which is not going to appeal to everyone because it's kind of you know like one of my friends who I've been watching the show with keeps just making fun of it because he's just like oh this is like just a horny teenage boy has written this (laughs) like which when you're reading the book there's like Gaiman just talks about every single female character's tits and when there's not a female character the men will be talking about tits like when i was, I was folding <laughs> there's a photo i posted on twitter a few weeks ago of me just like folding down the pages every time they describe someone's breasts which is like constantly which is not something <gasps> i actually associate with neil gaiman right because he does use a lot of kind of intentionally weird and grotesque sexuality in his work but i this book i was like this is like just ridiculous because it's not weird or grotesque it's definitely just like you want to write about tits (laughs) um so yeah before i started on that boob related tangent um (laughs) the (laughs) it's just not a very emotional show and i think for some people that's going to be a problem and others it's not and if you're really invested in the book then it's not going to be a problem at all because it basically is the same idea, which is that lots of really interesting mythological references, cool road trips. It's visually kind of the equivalent of all the kind of sumptuous descriptions of weird scenes that happen in the book. But it's not something... I think like partly one of the the reasons I was especially disappointed by that is because I love Brian Fuller's earlier work so much, Um, not to discount Michael Green, who I will discuss later, because Brian Fuller writes romances, you know, Pushing Daisies is a romance, Hannibal's a romance, and they're very highly emotional stories. And clearly he is like a huge fan of this book. And it's also very much kind of in keeping with his love of sort of gothic drama, but it's nothing with like a heart behind it. And I keep comparing it to the show which I'm personally really obsessed with at the moment, which is Black Sails, which is also made by the Channel Stars. It's also like an adult rated drama with a lot of kind of uh, violence and gratuitous sex scenes. And it's just like, it's so much better from like an emotional storytelling perspective. And it's kind of an apples and oranges comparison because there are very different types of drama. But um, while I'm watching American Gods, good or bad things could happen to any of the main characters and I would not be moved. Well, part of the problem with that is that Shadow, the protagonist, is played by 
an actor who is very bad. And I would not normally be that blunt talking about something like this because I feel like it's kind of mean, (laughs) but it's astonishing. I mean, this guy is, or this performance from this actor, I mean, I don't want to judge, but it's really, really, really bad. He is incredibly flat. There's no emotion. It's a difficult character because it's quite a flat character to begin with, but you get nothing. I mean, within the first five minutes of this guy being on screen, I was emailing you saying, oh my God, I cannot believe how bad this guy is. And that is a huge problem when that's your protagonist. And it seems like they are aware that this is a problem and uh, move away from him somewhat in later episodes. But if you're trying to get the audience in any way emotionally involved in what you're doing, having a main character who can't act is an issue. The other issue with him is that I noticed maybe an episode and a half into watching, maybe even not that long, that the cinematography is sort of, um, I'm not exactly, I can't remember the, exactly the, the way, the like technical way to describe this, but it's basically color calibrated to white and not black skin, and the main character is black. So people have talked about this a lot in the past few years. Bradford Young, who is a black cinematographer who did Selma and Pariah and a number an arrival I think was the latest big thing he did he's an amazing cinematographer and he was the first person I saw talking about the fact that for literally the entire history of cinema cinematography had developed to shoot white skin and it's all about you know the amount of light that comes into the lens and etc etc and so black people's faces wouldn't get developed in exactly the right way because it just wasn't how cinematography was designed There's no reason why it's more difficult to do that. Obviously, it's just that nobody thought about it. And so he and then other cinematographers basically said, "Uh, we're not going to do that anymore. And so if you watch something like Moonlight, which has no white characters at all, the skin tones are incredibly rich. You can see all the characters very clearly in the dark. It's just a beautiful movie. And if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, that's just a really good example of what I'm saying. You watch this show and all the white characters, you see their skin tones perfectly. You can see them in the dark shadow. And then also the other black characters become very obscured, even in scenes with light, or if it's really bright, then he gets washed out because it's, it's just not exposed correctly, but you often can't really see his face. And I just thought, oh my god, they have not thought about the fact that their lead character is black and they need to know how to shoot him correctly. And I thought at first, maybe I'm, maybe this is just a couple shots that are off. I should watch more. It's absolutely a consistent problem the entire time. And it wound up driving me insane. And I think is kind of reflective of a larger issue of just not thinking about certain things that have gone into the show. I also think the cinematography in general is not great, but it's just such a weird and aggravating problem for them to not have 
for them to have created for themselves. And it's also not helping this guy's not very good performance in the first place if you can't see him. Right? Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> so with Ricky Whittle, I think you found his performance a great deal more grating than I did. I don't think much of his performance, like partly because the show as a whole has like really great supporting cast members. So like Ian McShane is obviously phenomenal. He just is just, yes. he's just amazing. Emily Browning, who plays Laura, she's like from episode four onwards, her role is just great. And then there's like background performers like Orlando Jones, who I think everyone has like seared into their memory from episode two with his speech on the slave ship, which is like amazing. Cloris Leachman playing um, the eldest of the three Russian women and like Chris Obi, who's actually my favorite actor in the show. Um, he plays Anubis and I realized that that's kind of a weird character to have as your favorite, but I'm like, I fucking love him. <laughs> so like they have this really fantastic supporting cast and then the protagonist is just so noticeably less good than all of them. But my main problem is not actually his performance, but just the way the character has been rewritten. It was clearly a very difficult problem they had to struggle with when they were adapting it because in the book, he's very nearly wordless in a lot of scenes. The whole book is told from Shadow's perspective, so almost everything is like his internal monologue. So you get to know him really well. And even though he's not like he's not like the most thrilling of protagonists, like I know that a lot of people find him quite obscure. But I actually like rereading the book, I was like, I actually really prefer him in the book than I than to the show, because in the book you really do get the impression of his viewpoint on everything that's happening around him. He's very chill and calm about all the weird stuff that's happening about him, but you kind of know that it's because he's just, he doesn't have anything to live for basically because like his wife's dead and he doesn't have any purpose in life. And also he's naturally like a very calm person. It's just this really interesting portrayal of someone who's very quiet but there's like a lot going on underneath the surface. Like the people are constantly judging him by his appearance. You know, he's a very large black man who people are kind of like treating like he's an idiot or like thinking he's going to be a danger or something. And like you get all of their impressions and what they're saying to him because all the other characters are so loquacious. And then he's very quiet, but you see what's happening inside him. And for a, for a character like that, you need a performance that's like Heath Ledger and Brokeback Mountain levels because you need to have someone where you can see everything that's <laughs> happening under the surface. And obviously the, like Ricky Whittle is just not, at this point in his career, he's like not capable of doing that. But also that's not how they've characterized him in the show because like it's so hard to have that as the main character in a TV show. They've made him, um, he's far more talkative, but also like the way that he reacts to stuff is drastically different from the book. So he spends a lot of time freaking out, which is a very realistic reaction to his circumstances like obviously if all this supernatural shit is happening around you of course you're gonna freak out like it's a really weird situation and you constantly would be like yelling like what the fuck's going on please explain and like he doesn't really acknowledge yet that all these characters are gods which does make sense but it's just like absolute garbage in the context of the show because the whole show is just accepting at face value that these supernatural things are real and you're watching something that's intentionally quite surreal and weird and he has just been plunged into this kind of other world. And it's just fundamentally not very interesting to watch him constantly questioning that. Um, even though there are like a few interesting conversation scenes between him and Mr. Wednesday where they're kind of talking about the nature of belief in reality. I'm just sort of like, why don't you just accept that these people are gods and magic's happening? Because it's not very interesting to watch someone just like not acknowledge the main world building concept of the show. There's plenty of shows where there's kind of a central conceit of the main character is they don't know an essential piece of information that other people know. That's basically the premise of Hannibal. You know, you know that Hannibal's a serial killer, but there's no suspense to Shadow not knowing that Mr. Wednesday is Odin. Because when he finds out, it'll just be like, oh, okay, 
sure <laughs> like this is weird info that we already knew but like it's not it doesn't have any personal impact so it's like i don't know how they could have adapted that character in a more effective way but it either would have required like a much better actor where you have like much more a better idea of kind of what's going on under the, surf- under the surface or they should have rewritten him so he has like more of a purpose as a person because right now you're kind of like why is he traveling with mr wednesday like he makes this pact in the first episode which like by the laws of fairy tales that obviously does mean they're bound together but like the show doesn't really illustrate that it just shows him like having a really unpleasant time being dragged around by this criminal and it's like shadow's really concerned about getting arrested and put back in jail so why would he just go and do crimes with mr wednesday and they don't really go into whether that's because he's really depressed because his wife is dead or yeah there's a lot of problems with him as a protagonist i think it kind of goes beyond the performance and just into the kind of basic writing and it's unfortunate because i really really love basically every supporting character in the show yeah it's a series of problems that coalesce into one big problem which is unfortunately the center of the enterprise and i don't quite know what the solution to that would be because given the structure of the plot in the novel, it's not like you could just shift the focus to someone else. I mean, I guess you could just make it an ensemble. I mean, they've literally done that. But... Because I've not. So I've, I've wa- I'm not going to give any spoilers, but like I've watched, you know, the rest of the show, and um, it really is an ensemble show. Like there's episodes where they either don't have very much shadow. There's one episode where there's literally just no shadow almost, and they're clearly they've understood that the highlights of the book are kind of the sense of cool which is why most people love the book it's just like wow that's a really cool book and also just the independent supporting character vignettes which is what they've done yeah. but also like initially the show was planned for i think it was like a 10 episode first season and they then cut it down to eight and i read somewhere they they edited together two episodes into one so there's like i think episode three i think was originally two episodes and i'm like i have a completely unverified theory that they cut quite a lot of shadow material so they could spend more time on the mythological stories yeah that makes sense that is my suspicion anyway that's our (laughs) our hot theory over here (laughs) based on nothing i mean that yeah like what else would you cut or slice well we won't know because it's not there but like i mean it is i imagine it's quite an easy show like compared to most shows it's quite easy to kind of cut apart because like so much of it is kind of disconnected short stories like um salim and the gin and that sort of thing but yeah yeah so do you have any uh particularly insightful words for us about the mythology as (laughs) a former student of this area I feel like you put me on the spot now. Like in each of my recaps, I kind of, I do like a little spotlight on the characters and how how they've been adapted and what their kind of mythological background is. Um, you see, it's quite, it's quite difficult for me to kind of think about American Gods as someone who's watching the show kind of, I guess, fresh, like as an outsider, because growing up, I read so much Neil Gaiman and I also like read so many myths and legends that when I started watching American Gods, I like couldn't really conceive of it as feeling unusual in any way um and a lot of the kind of initial spoiler free reviews in the first few weeks before the episode came out were being like talking about how it was so incredibly strange and groundbreaking and it took me a while to kind of get on board with that because i was like just seems like super normal to me 
as someone who's read a lot of Neil Gaiman, <laughs> like I was just like, there's nothing like weird here. And then as the show progressed, I kind of, I realized that it's like basically unheard of to see people having these kind of conversations about religion on like American TV. Cause obviously there are like TV shows about religion and there are TV shows with religious characters, but it's either like treated quite gingerly or um, it'll be like, oh, there's like a crazy Christian cult and it'll be like a kind of an Americana story, right? And I think that's where Michael Green comes in, the co-showrunner. Um, he clearly has like a really intense personal interest in religion. I would love to know what parts of Alien Covenant he was working into in that context. Um, but so, cause like he, when he made Kings, that's based on um, a biblical story. Um, it's based on the, the story of David and Goliath initially and kind of David then ascending to the throne, but it's set in the present day and it has the Old Testament God is present. He's not visual, but he, you can tell that he's kind of influencing things in the show. And it has like a really interesting attitude towards faith because it's very clearly a Christian faith, but it's an Old Testament faith in the present day where supernatural forces are like visually at work, kind of like in a Shakespeare play. And I love that show. I just find it fascinating. And I think this show kind of reflects that because it's given him a means to like explore the concept of belief. There's only really one character in the show who is faithful, who is Salim. They go into more of that later in later episodes you've not seen yet, but um, none of the main characters are religious, but obviously all of the gods are kind of the recipients of faith and it kind of examines like the concept of faith as like a tangible force. And that's something that's in like all of Neil Gaiman's work and also all of Terry Pratchett's work, but it's not something you really see on television like the concept of just straightforwardly treating religion as magic um, and I look forward to seeing what people think of when actual Jesus shows up because they do have Jesus in this show <laughs> um, and I, I am curious to see if that inspires backlash. I feel like it probably won't because if you're like a very conservative Christian who's likely to get offended by fictionalized depictions of Christ, you're probably not watching this show anyway because it's just full of man-eating vaginas and stuff. And I feel like those things don't really gel together as personal interests. <laughs> yeah, I think like my the detail that I keep going back to when watching the show, the one kind of visual detail that really worked for me, other than just kind of in a superficial sense that I think it's nice to look at, is um the sky which in the background of like a lot of scenes, you see the sky, but it's never, um, it's always very hyper-realistic. Like instead of it being like, oh, we've got like a big shot of like, you know, clouds looking nice. They've done like really intensive CGI. So you can see like the Milky Way or there was like really crazy storm clouds like in Mad Max Fury Road or something. And I feel like that's a really kind of effective background illustration of the ancient power of these gods because they all come from like a period when religion was more to do with survival and like the elements and inexplicable forces at work whereas modern religion is to do with morality and living your life right and it's kind of it's very different and that's kind of the clash between the modern jesus-y type religions and odin who's just like canonically <laughs> so to speak in original norse myths is just a huge asshole um and people are just like well we better like go sacrifice some human bodies to this guy otherwise he's gonna send a storm and kill us all um which is really not the modern conception of religion by and large <laughs> yes well it's interesting that you say that because the best show on tv right now for my money the leftovers, is the leftovers <laughs> which is all about religion yeah i need to I start mean, watching the leftovers it's all about questions of faith and doubt and the conceit of that show for people who haven't seen it which is probably most of you since it does not have a massive audience apart from all the tv critics that... that i follow on twitter 
I don't yes. know what happens in this show. Miraculously, I've never been spoiled for any element. I could not even name any actors in it. But my God, does every TV critic fucking jizz themselves over this show? <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you the premise right now. It's okay. That's all right. <laughs> Which is that 2% of the population just va- of the of the whole world just vanishes one day like in front of, like in front of you i mean you could be sitting there and just be gone um and there's never any explanation for it and needless to say this inspires massive crises everywhere because nobody knows what has happened and the point of the show is never to give an answer to what occurred and it's quite clear from very early on that it's never going to tell you so damon lindelof who created it basically veered in the opposite direction of his lost model which was all about posing questions and then giving answers um and this is in the opposite direction of having this big existential thing that happened and instead of having it be about the plot of that using it as a vehicle to explore these big human questions of grief and the meaning of life and faith and so like cults form because people are having you know massive crises about this and people start doing completely crazy things while also trying to maintain order in their lives and it's in its third season now, it's almost over, and that will be it for the whole show. And it is so profound about all of this. And Justin Theroux plays basically a, a Jesus figure, but in the most <laughs> uh, unfussy way possible, I would say. It's it's really, it's quite something. And Damon Lindelof has, I think, said in interviews that when he was, he's Jewish, and when he was, like, 13 or something, became really obsessed with Jesus. Not in, like, a religious way. Like, he just, I don't, he's a character. There's there's a lot going on. The man on. behind Prometheus. So, actually, he and Michael Green have that weird connection going on with their yes. religious writing. Both of them are using the yeah. Alien franchise to, uh, <laughs> to play <laughs> to around. To exercise some things. Yep. But I obviously haven't seen this whole show. I've only seen the first four episodes. But this struck me as a much more superficial engagement with a lot of these questions, at least. I mean, I think it's, it doesn't have the same goals, point. you know. Oh, <laughs> so certainly. So, like, I mean, I wasn't. I was. I don't think anyone was going not. into this expecting it to be like a very intensive theological drama. No, it is no young pope. I mean, <laughs> clearly, clearly, but um. What I feel like I thought this about the book at the time, although I can't quite remember now, but part of the effect certainly of watching it, and I think it's probably more, I think you probably feel this more watching it, I at least felt this, was that you have these gods representing various religions and therefore cultures that they just feel to me like slightly embroidered stereotypes because you only have the one or two people who are representing these places. And they're not written in an like extremely racist way or anything, but because they are these little vignettes and they're supposed to represent archetypes, I don't find it that interesting as a way of actually representing like a multicultural society because you're kind of just getting the archetype of whatever culture is being discussed as opposed to a real engagement with it. 
I don't know if I necessarily find that offensive. I just don't find it that compelling. And so watching, I mean, it's certainly intentional. Okay. Oh yeah, I I know that it is, but I was like, well, you know, sure. The it, it just didn't. It doesn't do that much for me, and I didn't think it was really telling me much that it was that interesting. The one sort of political thing that I did find very frustrating was that there's a scene where Shadow gets lynched by the sort of minions of the The technology kid, whatever, yeah. And it's clearly meant to invoke images of lynchings. The The Shadow says something about strange fruit. But there's no examination of what that image really means. The show thus far has not investigated or discussed the fact that Shadow is black. And that's okay. I mean, they do, but then they do you discuss can't... it because, like, the old Russian man is racist yeah, towards yeah, him. Yeah. And also, like, I think there was in a later episode, which I'm trying to remember, yeah, it's not aired yet, but I cannot discuss that. <laughs> yeah. but, um, um, but, like, the lynching scene also, when I was watching it, I was just like, what the fuck? Yeah. Because they really don't, they don't go into it, right? They are just using the imagery and it's this kind of weird situation where they're like, we're acknowledging... I guess this like icon of American racism, right? This like very meaningful visual, but it's like you have ended the pilot episode of your TV show by lynching your black protagonist, and I was just like, I don't, I don't see where this is coming from. It's not in the book. It's something they added for the show, and they don't really go into it afterwards. And it's just like this is like a very traumatic scenario that really should be handled with more delicacy. Um, I did read a review, which we could, we're going to post in the show notes from someone who had a very differing opinion. And she was like, I found this like really effective, but especially when you have like in the next episode, Orlando Jones's um, monologue as a Nancy, which I found, I just thought was fantastic. It's like, there is a real disparity between those two treatments of anti-black racism in America. One of which is very thoughtful and angry and like astute and the other one is just like we've lynched someone for no reason <laughs> and then the, well, right. like why right the i mean the people doing it there's no intention behind it that's ideological that i could discern and i also don't find the the treatment of shadow broadly speaking racially problematic if you will like i think it's fine but that moment i found completely bizarre Especially since it becomes it comes right at the beginning, and I just thought, what is what is going on? And again, there are just certain things in the show that I had the sense they hadn't thought about enough, despite the fact that clearly a lot—I mean, a lot of thought goes into any television show—but clearly a lot of thought has gone into all of the aesthetics and all of the stuff that they're doing. I think they could have thought a little more deeply about certain elements of certain things that they were doing. And that that probably would have helped a lot with the whole project. For instance, the last thing we should probably talk about is the way that they kind of reimagined Laura, the wife, which I think was quite successful and definitely the episode that I disliked the least. (laughs) It's my favorite episode. I loved that episode. I've now watched it twice. And I think that it's by far the best change they've made from the book. Because in the book, she really is kind of your archetypal, beautiful dead wife character where she does reappear occasionally. She does have like a role in the story, but you only really see her from Shadow's perspective, which is quite idealized. And they don't really go into like what their marriage was like beyond him having these really kind of nice reminiscences. And also the fact that she betrayed him by cheating on him with his shitty friend, who is wonderfully cast as Dane Cook, which I thought was a fantastic <laughs> choice. 
I agree. <laughs> Inspired casting once again. But they just completely rebuild her from the ground up. They kind of, they go to like the basic thing that you, they know about her, which is that she cheated on Shadow and they kind of think, what would her rationale be for this? Or what would be like the impetus for her doing something like that? And they decided to just make it that she's just this really nihilistic character. She doesn't believe in anything. She's really unhappy. She's got this dead end job. She's living in a town where she seems to only have like one friend who's a very entertaining character to watch, but like maybe not like a particularly deep relationship necessarily. And she kind of latches onto Shadow. So they have this like slightly toxic relationship where he just completely obsessively loves her. He's really, really loyal, but he doesn't really understand her at all. And he doesn't really get her depth of character. You know, there's scenes where she's in her hot tub huffing bug spray, like self-harm scenes, which was just like such a jolt after the first few episodes where you only see her kind of lying around looking beautiful in dream sequences, right? And then you realize that she's actually this kind of quite like unpleasant, ugly person who's very unhappy and misunderstood. And I was just like, this is amazing. <laughs> Cause like, she's just <laughs> so unpleasant, but like sympathetically unpleasant, even though she's just not great at this relationship. And also just like having a really miserable life. And it was just like, this is, I love it. It's great. Yeah, I thought they did a good job with that. And I thought Emily Browning played her very well. And I thought if they had put that level of thought into certain other elements of the show, that that would have helped immensely. And unfortunately, it does not seem like they did. And I really think she should be the main character. But unfortunately, that is not the case. She and her decomposing body. I just I just <laughs> love that she's decomposing. <laughs> I just love it. She's so uh, gross. <laughs> I remember finding that very compelling in the novel yeah. too. It was sort of the one thing. Um She does it's like <clears throat> she just smells really bad. It's really great to have it's just like it's really great to have a female character who's just like physically rotting. <laughs> I feel represented. <laughs> But like it really does, it really does make sense of their relationship in a way that just deepens Shadow's character by association. And it really is unfortunate that they didn't do the same thing for him. Because like there are, you know, there are always ways to make characters make more sense than they do in the original. Like that's what fan fiction is about. It's not like Brian Filler hasn't already done this before. Both of these writers have written on existing properties and done adaptations that drastically changed characters. And it seems like that even though they did it really, really well for Laura in a way that's also completely upended this very sexist trope from the book and made her by far one of the most interesting characters in the show. And it's just a pity that that didn't also happen for Shadow because they clearly have the capability and they should have been aiming it at him. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, well. Too bad. You can send us dispatches from the remaining episodes, which I will not be watching. (laughs) There's, yeah. Yeah, there's some really interesting stuff. In the later episodes. <laughs> I can't, yeah, it's really, it's really annoying that I can't talk about it, but uh, yeah. That's the price you pay yeah. for having screeners. I think we, 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 we chose a good time to review it, though, because I think episode five is kind of whatever, in my opinion. <laughs> I, I could not have watched more than four. This was really the upper limit of what I could bear, even though I thought I enjoyed four fine. That was about as much as I could take. I really powered, powered through. I think it's it's really unfortunate that I'm watching this concurrently with Black Sails because I could not be more invested in Black Sails unless I literally just had the words Black Sails tattooed on my body. 
<laughs> I it is the show I've loved most since Hannibal. It is easily in my top five TV shows of all time. So I'm kind of like when I'm watching American Gods for work purposes, I'm like, this is very interesting to write about. And I have a lot of appreciation for it. But like, I do not give a shit on the same level that I obsessively <laughs> care about every character in Black Sails, including the ones that I hate. I'm just like so invested. <laughs> so I think this is kind of this episode well, is an underinvested podcast, unfortunately. <laughs> I hope that neither Brian Fuller nor Michael Green ever listens to this because I am a huge fan of both of their work. And I would also very much like to interview them at some point. But unfortunately, I cannot lie <laughs> about well, my mixed feelings on American Gods. <laughs> I think your love comes through. <laughs> You've been very fair. I'm the hater, and I don't care about what they think. <laughs> so it's fine. Next week, we will be discussing Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman! Very exciting. I'm so bummed I can't go to a female-only screening because Britain sucks. Yeah. It's, it is yep. unfortunate. Surely there must be, like, an indie cinema somewhere that should do it. I know. In I London. Googled. There was I'm, I'm surprised the Prince Charles Cinema isn't doing it in London. Yeah. It seems like something they do. To be mm -hmm. honest, like, I would really quite like to go to a women-only screening of, like, anything. Maybe just once or twice a year, not for every movie, but, like, you know, a women-only screening of Mad Max Fury Road. Someone tweeted I Magic think, Mike, uh, Kaylee, you know, Kaylee Donaldson. I mean, those practically were yeah. female all screenings. <laughs> Although, actually, my experience I think was heightened by sitting next to a man and his middle aged father on one side, and then like a hippie dude down the for aisle Magic on the Mike? other side for Magic Mike XXL. Holy shit! And the the guy and his middle aged father, once it was over, started like quite seriously discussing the film on its cinematic merits and it was amazing oh my god i was like this is incredible it. anyway i think kaylee donaldson who i believe we both follow on twitter was tweeting something to this effect about having just the all female only screenings all the time and i think this what she suggested was the beguiled or something else and dunkirk and i was like <laughs> yes i think i did see that tweet actually yes yeah. oh man can you imagine the screening of dunkirk <laughs> In a perfect world. I mean, that would really be amazing. I can't imagine the experience. <laughs> I honestly can't fathom. I also, I also really good. enjoy, I really love the idea of that being like a film festival screening with like a bemused Q&A with Chris Nolan afterwards. <laughs> um, oh my God. Because he knows what he was doing when he hired Harry Styles, but he is not a man who has a tremendous amount of introspection when it comes to gender roles. Um, right. <laughs> to put it lightly and this is a film which as far as I can tell stars 480,000 men and literally zero women yep. yet I think that an all female screening would be would be interesting um, sublime but anyway Wonder Woman next week yes very exciting rare, rare superhero movie where I actually know fuck all about the character like I know the basics I have read a couple of Wonder Woman comics I know the origin story but really I'm going in blind here and the earlier reviews have been quite they good. They have. I've not read any, but it's so. been positive. I'm going to be seeing this at midnight screening um, for work purposes because <laughs> they inexplicably Excellent. did not have a critic screening here. But uh, yeah. All right. So we'll be back with that. Thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we would greatly appreciate a rating or a review on iTunes. That's how we find new listeners. And otherwise, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.